hey, this is Sharon, and how do you go from being a stand-up comedian to a copywriter to selling over $100 million worth of stuff online? Well, you do it by becoming a persuasion hitman. And I'm talking to the persuasion hitman himself, Ian Stanley. And this starts right now. One thing is for certain. Just because it's tried and true doesn't mean it's working right now. So the big question is this, where can you learn what is working right now? The strategies, the tactics, the psychology, and the exact how-to. How to grow your business. How to blow up your personal brand and supercharge your personal growth. That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Sharon Srivatsa, and welcome to Business School. So Ian, I was um, reading your intro or watching your intro video to the to your book, and literally, I watched it like six times. It's really it's probably the most entertaining and value added intro video of for any whatever you are selling. I was I was buying. Was uh, that for the for the the, for the book. Hitman book? Yeah, Did, you mean the whole video? Or I you watched the whole the video. I watched the whole oh, wow. video four times. I don't even remember it. I recorded it one time and then I haven't, I don't think I've even watched it well, since then. If whoever's watching this should hit pause right now, go to persuasionhitman.com and watch that because it, it's I appreciate hil- it. hilarious. And, uh, and I love the, I love the part where you, my favorite part, uh, like multiple favorite parts. My favorite part was when you showed all the books and you're like, well, if all these books shagged, like, this is a book if all these shagged. books shagged, that's right. I do. I remember. Yeah. It's the, you know, first off, you don't know if I'm wearing pants right now, right. I think is how it started. Yeah. I'm um, sitting at a computer. You have no idea if I'm wearing pants. We'll get to that at the end of the video. And then I took, I mean, that's how I sort of felt about it. Right. And I do, I have literally a yeah. book here. Right. And I, so I had out like the four hour work week, uh, this really weird, this Amer- uh, path notes of an American yeah. ninja master, which one of my favorite books ever It's very weird. And then uh, I think it was maybe the War of Art or and something. Yeah. And I was just like, if all these books shagged, yeah. And then they it's had so a baby. Good. That's that's what this it one was. was. It was so, it was so good. And uh, I think every it, everyone should watch it only because you busted every myth in that book in, in that video. You're like, hey, I actually wrote this myself. I didn't just talk it to somebody and they didn't right. just write it. That's I have what no everybody's int- doing now. Yeah. I have no interest in being a best-selling author in underwater basket weaving category. Like it was so spot right. on, man. Uh, Thanks, but- man. That's the angle that's worked best for that is this is not a bestseller because it's just a thing. You can game the algorithm. I could easily be a bestseller on Amazon. It might, I actually may have to change and be like accidental because now people go and they buy it on Amazon despite it being three times Free. more expensive yeah. on Amazon. They go buy it now and it's you know the more we sell the book on the site the more people go to amazon um but you want to know where i've never shared this you know i got the idea for the books shagging technically (laughs) was uh from um and i have to say that word right because you got to say you got to be careful with you know because that's there's ads running to that the um that is from the movie Pineapple Express. Have you seen that movie with no. Seth Rogen? And uh, I, I think, I mean, this is when I think back to where the idea could have come from. Uh, it's Seth Rogen and um, uh, what's his bloody name? Um, and there's Danny McBride. It was one of his first movies. The guy who was, you know, eastbound and down. Yeah. And then uh, how can I not think of his name? Is uh, James Franco. Yeah. 
So James Franco <laughs> plays the drug dealer and Seth Rogen plays a stoner, of course. And then Danny McBride is actually, Seth Rogen is the third funniest guy in that movie. He's like the third funniest guy in every movie he's in. He's great, but he's never the funniest guy. And there's a scene where he's got this big joint that he's talking about and he's, you know, he's a stoner. He's like, he's like, Oh dude, this is the best joint you ever smoke in your entire life. He's like, it's like at that purple dream that I gave you and that Northern mountain lights. And then this one, they fucked and then their babies fucked. That's what this is like. And so like, that's, I think where the original concept uh, came from. Dude, and, and you're, you're, uh, Literally, I think you and I could talk about just that video, but but the interesting part is you also did a really nice kind of uh, setup for the audiobook where you where where you did the whole if you like the Marcus whatever that guy the name yeah. is right like you you, you use this if you like, like Gladiator yeah if you like That's Gladiator I I have a slightly different audiobook voice it's a bit oh. more deep and so I say if you enjoy Gladiator then, you know, if the Marcus Aurelius, you know, father to a murdered son, <laughs> husband to a murdered wife. Dude, I, I heard yeah. that. I was like, how, how fast can I download this audiobook? Because it was... It, that's it, awesome. Right that. away, immediate. And that's on there, you know, immediate download. Uh, so you didn't, you didn't, uh, you were not kind of born with this uh, writing skill. How did, how did this develop? Um. No, I actually, the only, the class I got to be in, in my first year at university was English. And I was like, I'm not taking any more of these classes. It's this bullshit, subjective, you know, horseshit of like, I, you know, I was like, all right, at least in a math class, as much as I didn't like it, I was like, I got the right answer. But then, okay. and this is, bull I remember in high school, I would get the right answer in math. And then the teacher goes, you didn't show your work. I said, yeah, I didn't need to, because I know how to get the answer. Yeah. And she goes, no. You, 10 points off you get a b minus because i'm smarter than you you're going to give me a b minus and she will oh, miss oh i hated that woman yeah. i hated that woman <laughs> but um but no i wasn't i wouldn't have said that i was a natural writer um i think speaking yes i think that i had a natural ability in some level to speak um and then i started i would write a bit in college and then i bought some courses about email marketing and that's when i really like I was like buying and returning every ClickBank product. Like, you know, we had loophole to make $6,000, 23 cents in, you know, in three days uh, exposed. And I'm like, yeah, oh yeah, totally. I could do that. I was super gullible. And then I finally, I got this course about how to write emails and it just sort of resonated and it seemed fun. And then uh, I read do the work by Steven Pressfield. And yeah. so I'd had, I wanted to write this book about how to pick up women. Cause that's what you do when you're you know, 20 years old. And so I, I was, I sat down and wrote this, this, you know, it was like a 50 page book, but in three days. And I just was like, all right, I'm just going to write and, and, and do that. And the biggest thing that I think helped me was I didn't, I would, I would stop judging myself. So I would just allow myself to write without hitting backspace and without stopping. And that's the number one rule I tell anybody for writing is stop stopping. Just allow yourself to write, allow the, the deep subconscious part of your brain to put words down on the page. And so, but I wasn't, you know, I don't think I was a naturally fantastic writer, but then I realized I'd read this quote by Stephen King and it said, uh, if you want to get good at writing, do two things. One, read a lot. Two, write a lot. And that was in all caps, the person who showed it. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. And so when I, what I had realized though, was when I actually started writing, I was basically, when I was at college, I wasn't, 
I didn't really go to class. I would go to the first half of the first class. I'd get the syllabus, then I would sneak out, and then I would come back for the midterm and the final. And I wouldn't go in between. Like I literally wouldn't go in between. And uh, and I would just read books. And so I would read three or four books every week. And I was just reading on at the time it was an iPod Touch that had a Kindle app. And my mom did one of the smartest things I think any parent can do. She said, buy whatever books you want on Amazon. I'll just, you know, I'll pay for whatever it is. So I didn't have any costs associated with books. I was like, I'll just whatever I want. And they're only 10 bucks on a Kindle. So I would just read all the time. And what happened is, is all the mirror neurons are firing. And so without really practicing writing, I was decent right away because I had read so many sentences and I there is a level of understanding sentence structure that happens. And then it was basically writing was the first thing, you know, we, you and I talked about tennis before this uh, a little bit and we, you know, we were like, okay, we could talk about this forever because we both have a crazy background with it. But I, you know, I had a terrible mindset with tennis. I was totally, if you look at the growth versus fixed mindset, you know, I was 100% fixed mindset. My dad, you know, I, like I, I told you, my mom and dad are still number one in the world for their age. I was supposed to be mumbled in from age three and I was very physically talented, but I was mentally just a mess and everything was about talent and it was about, you're more talented. You should win because of that. It was never about practice. And so I practiced, you know, even in high school, three hours a week when everybody's practicing literally, you know, three or four hours a day nowadays. And, uh, and with writing, it was the first thing that I decided when I decided I want to get good, I would hand copy sales letters every day. I'd write them out by hand for an hour every morning and with no attachment to outcome. And that was the thing that made all the difference was by surrendering the attachment to outcome. I actually got good because so many people when they're writing, they're thinking about other people. What, what are people going to think? All oh, this shit. You can't write from that place. You have how to you, write uninhibited. How do you do that though? Like, how do you, what, what, what did you, how did you set the frame of mind to kind of, you know, detach from outcome? And I think that's a, that's a cool skill. If you can do it in one area, you can almost translate it to the other areas, but how do yeah. you detach from outcome? Yeah, unless you have enough deep-seated trauma from your childhood around tennis, then it takes you know, a couple of years of working with maybe the best therapist in the world in order to get on court and still hate every second, but have some level of you know ability to detach. But basically, part of it was like an anger at not having learned that earlier. Yeah. And so I kind of learned it mid-college. I read this book called The Talent Code. And I was like, oh, my God, my whole life is a fucking lie. (laughs) Like my dad taught me everything wrong about talent and practice. And so with writing, I just was like, why don't I actually apply everything I've learned about the 80-20 principle, about detaching from outcome, about I'd had this weird enlightenment experience when I was uh, 19. I had this odd glimpse into Satori experience, this glimpse into enlightenment and basically walked around for three months in total bliss and Um, and then it wears off, which is what happens with those experiences. But basically, you know, I'd had experiences of detachment, but never to a specific thing that mattered to me. And so I just went, it it wasn't, I didn't have a lot of baggage. So if you don't have any like deeper mental, emotional blocks around it, it's easier to do. But I knew that by surrendering attachment to outcome, that was actually how I was going to become best by letting go of your desire to write well on any given day, you can write well forever type thing. And, and Seinfeld has it, you know, I, I do stand up yeah. as well as my favorite thing in the world is stand up. And so, um, Seinfeld has this thing, you know, write a joke every day, no matter what. Yeah. And, uh, I had had this, this is about a year after college. I was living in San Diego. I'm writing copy with a, a company doing a bunch of email stuff. And I 
had seen the Seinfeld, but a lot of people have probably seen this, right? He's like, you know, you get a wall calendar and you put an X yeah. on the wall. Yeah. And so you put an X on there for every day you write a joke. And she's like, oh, I'll do it for emails. And then I like got kind of bored and I was like, I want to just do it for writing jokes. Yeah. And so I did it and I would write a joke every day, no matter what. And I always remember the day that uh, the most important day to me, it was 11.45 p.m. I'd woken up on my couch. I'd like fallen asleep on my couch. I woke up and I hadn't written my joke for the day and I hadn't missed any at this point. And, uh, and I was like, all right, I gotta write something. And I'm like, you know, in that like post nap, you know, disability sort of stage (laughs) of like, and I, I looked at my, you know, at the, in the kitchen, there's like a pizza there. And I was like, Oh my God, this is the worst joke I'll ever have written. And this is, I'll tell you the joke. It's the worst joke I've ever written probably still. And because I had to go to the bathroom at the same right then too. And I was like, what's, what do you call a pizza you eat on the toilet? I was like, pooperoni. And it's so bad. It's one of the worst so jokes I've written. <laughs> so and, but, but I remember it so much because it was that willingness to be bad that yeah. allowed me to get good. It's the willingness to do the act. Like that's what a professional does. That's like all Stephen Pressfield's stuff around resistance and turning pro is like the professional shows up and does the work without any sort of outside worry about those things, just do the work, get it done. Did I write the joke? Yes. Was it good? No, but that's, it's the willingness to be awful is the only thing to have bad days that you can have great days later because you can't show up and be your best every day. And that was the big thing in tennis was I was supposed Mm -hmm. to play my best every day. You play your best in tennis, maybe 5% of the time, of course, literally out of all the sports, it's so un common to play your best and so for me my best was better than pretty much everyone yeah but my okay was the gap was so far down because as i got angry i got worse and worse and i always got angry and so it was like the gap was big whereas the best players their best is here but their worst is like here yeah and so they're consistent and they have that they show up and, and that was kind of what it was with writing was like let's just show up and and do the work. And so I wrote every day for 90 days. I had a joke and then I was like, oh man, I should probably do something. So I did, I signed up, for, I'd gone skydiving. This is very short, but weird. So I went skydiving. I had zero adrenaline dump whatsoever. I felt nothing. And I was like, all right, my adrenaline's broken. I'm something's wrong with me. I got to figure this out. And so I, I signed up to do a set of stand up and I curled up on the floor. I have a picture still of my forehead on the ground, just terrified. And, uh, and it gave me that fear that oh, I'd been wow. seeking. And so that I had been um, seeking. I heard that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want it. I need it. We need fear. It's why we're alive. Um, and are you talk about stand up for a second? Did you um because I've I've never talked to anybody who actually like talks about their stand-up process. Did you write kind of your routine? Did you kind of wing it? Did you know the flow? How did that work? Yeah, so um, I had been writing all these different bits. And then as you start writing bits, you start to try and work them into conversations and test them out on friends and things. And so I had done, I mean, at that point, I'm not so much a joke writer either. I don't, as you could tell by that terrible joke, like there's not a lot of jokes that I write. I don't write one line as I tell stories. And within the stories, you have all these jabs and then you have sort of, your, you know, your haymakers of your bigger laughs and stuff like that. But you learn how to sort of interject funny words and little pieces that create laughter. And and really the biggest thing I did is I, I started asking with every, basically every conversation I was having, I would go 
if somebody laughed, I go, why did they just laugh? Huh. I didn't ask them that, right? But I go, why did they laugh? And you, there are like a few principles, like seven main triggers of what causes laughter. And so I would just pay attention. And I just learned the deeper ways of why people laugh. And then you're like, oh, you can kind of recreate laughter through that. And so, um, so but, what would be what would be like a principle if you just to bring it to life? The most common one that everybody talks about is surprise, and that's that's the biggest thing that gets a laugh. You have an expectation um, or they you know an assumption about what's about to be said, and then you say something different. Mm -hmm. And so by saying something different, there is a laugh, <laughs> right? And so um, juxtaposition is another one. So things that don't seem to match up, like like uh, you know Sean Connery bagging groceries. Right. Like, you know, do you prefer paper or plastic? Like yeah. the idea of just fucking James Bond being like, hey, you know, I bag groceries now yeah. or something or uh, when a baby, you know, when a toddler says, fuck. Yeah. Well, that's funny because you don't expect them to do it. It's a juxtaposition of the thing that's not supposed to be happening is happening. Um, and then there's a handful of other things of just like observation is basically the idea that we've experienced it. And it's very funny to find out that somebody else has had the same exact experience. Uh, and now they're telling us about it. Yeah. Right. You ever go to the, you know, like, and what's, you know, there's something about, I really respect Seinfeld as a person. I don't necessarily love his, I don't find his stand up super funny. Yeah. But there's also something annoying about the, he's written so many of the observation jokes. Like you'll be, you know, you know, you ever, you ever put money in a tip jar and then they don't see it. And then you try and grab it back. You know, I had, and then somebody's like, oh, Seinfeld yeah. did it. I'm like, oh, of course. Yeah. But uh, there's something funny about somebody else expressing, putting words to something we've experienced over and over again. Yeah. Um, and so I would basically ask, but, but back to your question was, I had written all of this different stuff, but I had this one thing I had written that I didn't tell any of my friends. And I knew this was going to be the bit that I did. And... Um, and I did practice, I wrote it, I literally, you know, I wrote it out on the computer and then I, and I had this whole file of, you know, all this comedy stuff. And then, uh, I basically that day I actually was rehearsing it and I was like, you know, I had a water bottle in my hand as a microphone I was like, all right, let's, you know, I want to make sure I remember everything. And so my style was very like my, one of my best friends was there was like, it was very Zen. It was like, you were trying to go play tennis and be calm because I was like, yeah, I don't want to fucking forget what I'm trying to say, but, uh, it was this bit about basically being English and American. So one of my, still the joke I tell at the start of pretty much everything is, you know, I'm, if you're wondering where I'm from, I'm half English and half American, which is why I sound Australian. Uh, and everybody's like, oh my God. And then, so now, you know, I've added to it and I go, oh, ha, ha, ha. oh yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. And like, yeah. And so I start with that same thing. It works because also people, if I don't say that, then they spend the rest of the time instead of listening and laughing, like, where is this guy from? Yeah, totally. What is that voice? Is he an Australian guy? And then they get all, they can't focus on your words because they're trying to pick out your accent. And so, you know, I started with that. And then I basically told this, well, I didn't really realize at the time this is, it's a story, but it's three sort of pieces of, it's like all the conversations I have with American girls, you know, and I basically just talked about how every, every conversation I have with American girls is the same. And, you know, so it's, oh my God, do you have an accent? And then I tell this story and it, it, it was for my first ever set to it like crushed. It went ridiculously well. Um, and, uh, and I kind of knew sometimes you write something you're like, this is going to work. And that's weird for your first set, but, and I didn't tell my friends that one kind of because I knew I was like, I don't want to ruin this one and test it. And so I did that. And then, you know, something kind of probably worth mentioning as well within the realm of, uh, of just entrepreneurship and stuff in general is 
the the one of the biggest things that holds people back in general is self-sabotage and self-sabotage tends to occur right at the point where we're about to get everything we want we find a way to basically fuck it up and um and so looking back to it or we get and so there's a book called the big leap that has sort of all the reasons why we you know self-sabotage and so I, i didn't have i didn't have the book at this time when i started but my big pattern in life has been that when i succeed at something it makes other people feel bad because most things in life have come quite easily to me right so i was the only kid in school with a 4.0 in elementary school and so what happened my two best friends oh 4.0 with no common sense right and they'd make fun of me i'm like why do they call me that mom and my mom would be like because they're jealous and i was like oh and as a kid you still don't understand that you're like it's mean you know and then i would basically everything i did there was a somebody would seemingly be in pain due to the fact that i was excelling at something and so the first time i did stand up I went up uh, on stage, it went really well. And there were like three people who went after me, who talked about me on stage, which is not a common thing for me to go. And they were like, so I was like, oh, yo, fuck that English dude. Like, you know, he, and I made I had some joke. He's like, it's crazy. He just make a racist joke. And like, because he has an accent, nobody gives a shit. And it was like, it wasn't racist. It's was like a, I did an Asian accent, um, you know, at the end of this thing. And, and then, uh, and then he goes, and you know, and you could just tell that guy takes his shirt off. He's like ripped. Oh, fuck him. Like, you know, and then like, and so I had this, like a few people made yeah. these comments. And so it was like, I had this shame that it's like, oh, well, again, I had, I already had kind of this thing. of, Well, I don't look like a comic. So, you know, I gotta, you gotta kind of fight against that, that piece. And so I always self-deprecate when I get on stage. And I think that time I said, you know, this is my first time ever doing stand up. Um, Hopefully it's, you know, last night or the first time I had sex or something. Or I, I had one joke I'd written that was that I didn't do. It was something like, you know, I've only got, you know, so it'll be a lot like the first time I had sex. I'll just, it'll last two minutes and I'll just be sweating in your mouth up here. Um, and, uh, but so, um, but I, and this, you know, this relates very much to just the, the entrepreneurial sort of journey that people yeah. go through is people want to find a way to push you down because, they feel insecure about their own stuff. And so I, it took me, I mean, I basically did a few sets that year, like five, six, I was like, this is what I'm going to do for my life. This is, I love this more than anything. And then when I moved to Texas about a year later, I basically stopped for like four years, despite it being the thing I cared about most. And a lot of it was the shame around like, well, I don't look like a comic. I'm supposed to, you know, that, and I, you know, and people don't want me up there type thing. And so instead of, and then finally when it like clicked and I was like, no, no, I'm going to take this and make this big disadvantage be my biggest advantage. And so, you know, one of the first things I say on stage is like, there's nothing worse you can be in standup than an in shape, reasonably good looking white guy. Right. That's there's, good. there's nothing funny about healthy white people. And, you know, I look at, you know, chubby guy looks at me and they go, I wouldn't mind looking like him. Yeah. And I look at a chubby guy and I go, I want that comedy bod. Right? <laughs> That's right. That, you know, come on. Hey guys, I just got you from the gym. You're like, no, you didn't. You're fat. <laughs> and so I just started to say the things that I was afraid to say. I just made them my, my bit. They were the things I would say to my friends. And so by sort of leaning into that, I mean, for everybody, there are these things that they view as their disadvantage. And then you realize there's no such thing as a good or an absolute good or bad thing in life. Everything's a double-edged sword. And so you can either go, well, this is my biggest issue. And instead, go well. If there's nobody that sort of looks like me or is the way that I am on stage, that doesn't mean there's no space for me. It means I can be the only one, 
And so you kind of go, why don't I lean into this thing that's my apparent disadvantage? And that made a huge shift to me. Do you think um, we all have our own kind of uh, inner voice that is, at least for most entrepreneurs, that is uh, predominantly negative? Uh, uh, do you think that your, you know, kind of medium of expressing yourself, which was primarily writing, uh, helped kind of process that in any way? I actually don't have a generally negative uh, way. I have like an overly optimistic general sense outside of tennis. Literally, it's like this one pocket of my life, which is the darkest, most negative place possible. I didn't have a lot of doubt. I, I was like, my thing has always just been, if somebody else did it, there's zero percent chance that I can't do that thing. Right. And I understand a lot of that comes from a childhood, not parents giving, instilling that belief, but it was like with writing and stuff, I was like, there's no way if I practice that I can't be really good at this. And so I didn't have that, but what I writing is absolutely a therapeutic process in itself. And one of the best ways to organize thoughts and, you know, just sitting down, even if you're not a writer, taking thoughts that you're having circling and writing those down is absolutely a beautiful thing. And, and the best, you know, one of the chapters in my book is tell the stories that scare you the most and nothing will connect your customers to you better than a story that is vulnerable and just at the absolute roughest edges, you know, connection happens around the rough edges. We don't fall in mm-hmm. love with perfection and perfect people. And that's why Superman bores me to death. Um, he's, you know, he's perfect. Well, if you have this special alien rock, you can hurt him. Otherwise he's, you know, kind of undefeatable and sorry, he's boring. And so, but even within Superman, well, how do you create, you have to create flaws and the flaws become his normal life. How do you live a normal life and have love when you're Superman? And so flaws and rough edges are what create connection. And so that's been the biggest, one of the biggest advantages of writing and being able to write from a place of telling. And and that's what stand up is, is what you do is you take the most embarrassing stories of your life the one that the stories you never thought you'd tell anyone. And then you go and tell that in front of a group of strangers (laughs) and it, and it turns down the volume on the rest of life. You know, it's just like, everything's kind of muted. It's like, it's like fight club where it's like, after you go and do that shit, everything's kind of easy. Yeah. You you said um, one thing in one of your um, videos, which was very cool. And I think a lot of, I call it entrepreneurs, mainly service providers, uh, coaches and consultants who seem to be in this modern world of um, I, I'm kind of just like the other person, right? I'm just like the other uh, coach. I'm just like the other uh, real estate agent. I'm just like the other insurance broker. And you flipped something, which was you took this, hey, I'm not a copywriter anymore. I am this, you created this persuasion hitman persona. And I'd love for you to maybe like talk about that little journey. Cause I, oh, that almost felt like a kind of turning pro moment for me when I, when I heard you kind of talk through that, it was a really cool. Oh, arc. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. I mean the, it was kind of like, first off as a copywriter, which is what I started out as, you know, I basically, I wrote copy and I wrote a lot of email and then I started to make these videos. The company I was with, I became the face of it. I did the first video I did was this thing. I was like, I want to drink out of a toilet with this water filter that we have. And the first video went viral and had hundreds of thousands of views the first day and went and made a bunch of sales. And it was like, okay, well, I'm going to you know, keep doing this and thinking of sort of weird shit. And so now I'm suddenly I'm making videos and I'm on camera 
And then I'm looking at the, you know, all of the backend and analytics for all these different pieces and all the upsell flow and creating all these different pieces. And, and so then copywriter felt very much like a box that only talked about one piece of what I did. And so as I started freelancing and stuff, I found that, you know, if you call yourself a copywriter, you charge what a copywriter charges. Mm-hmm. You get put in a box of all the mistakes copywriters have made. And it's like, if you're a plumber, well, you have to deal with all of the stigma of every other plumber that's come before you. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, how can I just create my own category, right? And so mm-hmm. that's what Aduba do, right? They created a category. When you create a category, you separate yourself immediately. And I say, you know, what does a persuasion hitman charge? Just whatever the fuck I want, mm-hmm. right? There's no category because now you're lumped in. Well, well, this copywriter only charges 10000 or they charge mm-hmm. 10000 Why do you charge 25000 Because I'm better, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I get this. Well, yeah. but now I've got to compare myself. What do the other persuasion hitmen charge? Well, there aren't any. So this is the rate and this is how it goes. And so it was just, I wanted to play by my own rules. And and that's, you know, so many people, they play a certain game and then they, you know, if you're going to play a game, figure out a way to change the rules. If you can't change the rules, change the game or play a different game. And I think so many people accept that things are supposed to be a certain way and this is how it's done. And so for me, like I'd say my, if not my number one rule, one of my absolute top rules of just, marketing in general is don't be boring and it's better to be different than it is to be better. And it's also easier to be different, you know, to go and be better than the best writer isn't easy, but to go do something genuinely different. Like I didn't have to be a genius to go, well, if I drink out of a toilet with a water filter, it's probably going to be pretty interesting. I didn't suddenly become a better marketer than people who had sold, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of stuff. I just did something different. And so, you know, that's the, one of the biggest things I was actually just working with. We've for the first time I've actually hired a, a copywriter in our business. Who's sometimes writing stuff as me. And it's really hard to kind of capture my yeah. voice since it's a weird and unique sort of voice. And I was like, I just went over some stuff with him. I was like, if this just isn't, there's nothing memorable yeah. in this ad. I could read this ad and it's decent, but I would never remember it. And that's kind of the thing I asked. I just launched this thing called the Exponential Income Roadmap. And the, the headline to the page is a real life treasure map for grownups. And that is not the same as all these other marketers teaching how to make money of just, oh, you know, it's like how to escape the nine to five. And that's what the other guy had written. And I was like, it just bores me. Yeah. And so it's like, what can you create that just is something that people would walk away and 10 days later, they still remember that thing that you said or that thing that were three years of people, I saw your video five years ago. I saw this thing and they remember it. It's like, that's the biggest advantage you can have as you, t- and this is actually, this is a lot of where comedy comes from. And this sort of yeah. all circles around is the easiest place to find humor is in opposites. So, you know, I do these parody videos, right? I do like lie Topaz and Kent Gardon <laughs> and Barry Grinder Chuck. People go, how'd you come up with it? And I flip the words around. Yeah. Ty Lopez became lie Topaz just so happens that I thought he lied and I lie was the name. And so it's like you take the opposite and the opposites tend to be funny, but it's also a really, inter- it's a really good way to find interesting hooks and angles is well, what's everybody else doing. It's uh, you know, how to, even if, so what I teach is, you know, how to make more money in less time while having more fun. So I could write an ad, how to make less money and, and work more. And you write the ad as though you're trying to sell that as a joke. And it's like, look, if you actually want to do it this way, here's what I would recommend. And so you just take the opposites of the things that everybody's doing 
And then, you know, oh, everybody's got a Lamborghini picture. It's like, hey, what's up? Here's, this is me with my tricycle. Like, you know, <laughs> what's up, guys? This thing cost me $3 at a garage sale. Like, I'm living large, you know? And it's like, oh, that's, there's an immediate difference and opposite of the of the rest of the market. And there's yeah. no such thing as a board, as a saturated market, in my opinion. There's only board markets. That's good. So you can go in and if you're another coach like everybody else, you can be it's not necessarily saturated. Like people would easily have said that the taxi market is saturated. Yeah. Well, Uber did it differently and suddenly it's not. People were bored. Yeah. Is there um it, it seems like the the kind of the raw material to come up with interesting stuff uh, is almost in the volume of stuff that you create. Uh, would you say that? Uh, because if you hadn't put an X for every joke that you wrote, you probably got two or three really good kind of slam dunk ones from doing kind of the 50 pounds of clay mm-hmm. type stuff. So how, do, yeah. how does how does somebody, uh, how is there a belief system around that? So some you call it somebody who wants to write, and or draw or speak or whatever whatever skill they want to develop how do if you had to coach them and saying hey uh, here's an idea give you a little uh, inspiration to do this every single day and how do you kind of install that belief system that it will the volume will pay off yeah i mean quantity breeds quality if there's good practice within that quantity right so the best way to get better at writing is to write a lot, but to also focus on one thing at a time. So when you're writing for a week or for a month, you go, I'm just focused on transitions. Like people, a lot of writers, they have these clunky transitions, especially sales writers. It's like, there's this story and then it abruptly hits the sales pitch. And what the, I, that just, it was like very weird and sort of abrupt. And so I used to not be great at transitions. And I learned, I would just focus on that piece. I focus on the first line. You know, the first line of any sales message, of any conversation, anything you do is always the most important. So you focus on just writing incredible first lines, and then and you you practice that thing. But it's it's uh, so it's the barbell theory of um, of basically of success or of quality is. Let's say you work out seven times a week. Now, two or three of those, you know, on any sort of bob, it's going to be, let's say there's three or four just decent workouts. You can have one or two that aren't great. And then you have one or two that are great. And most of the growth is going to occur on these great days. But if you, you, you know, but then you have five of these great or, you know, good workouts that you've done and you have these two bad ones in writing. I look at it as if you write every day, first, if your your bad becomes good, right? As you get better, my worst day is still pretty good. But there are days when I write worse than others. Absolutely. You can feel it. You can tell. But I don't stop. That's the other big difference. Just because I'm not writing well doesn't mean I'm going to stop. It's like when you go to the gym, just go through the – if you don't feel good at all, just go through the motions. Do the bare minimum. And so there's, you work up to this daily minimum of sort of um, – and you, and you accept that the willingness to be bad – is how you become great. Mm. How bad are you willing to be? Like, how how many shitty ideas can you have? I guarantee I've had more bad ideas than most people, but I've had way more ideas. And so I've had a lot more good ones too. And so many people are so afraid to share an idea, to have an idea because they want it to be good. And so like one of my rules in any meetings we have or any just any time I have conversation about new things, we're doing no judgment. There's no such thing as a bad idea. Throw it out. Just put it out there. We're not allowed to judge for the first hour. And then you can come back and start judging later. 
because judgment will kill that one kid in the corner who's like he puts out an idea and then you go that's dumb that kid's never going to speak again right right yeah so you just have to be willing to throw shit at the wall and and you know produce i really do believe especially with writing that quantity will produce quality over time yeah so um how uh, just to just to kind of mechanically wrap this up how do you do you think the modern world of social media uh, where you can do an Instagram story that disappears in 24 hours or a LinkedIn post or a Facebook post. 10 years ago, you know, call it when you were just getting into the game, we had email, like literally that's, a, that's about it. So you could send one bad email, but now you can get almost semi real-time feedback on a post. And it's, it's real when you push the button of sorts. So uh, your thoughts around using kind of the modern day social media tools to develop your skills. What do you think about that? Have you done it? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk. So like even I, I did it, I made a bet with my girlfriend at the start of this month. I said, I'll pay 250 bucks any day. I don't post on Instagram or do a story. Cause I'm, I know I just want to do my, I need to do more of it. And there's only one great way to do that and to get, I know how to make great stories. That's what I do. I make videos. I do shit, but I just haven't been doing it. Cause there's more, there's so much more judgment in social media than there is. Yeah email and that's why i love email so much it's just nice technically it's not private yeah so anybody could go share your email or whatever but like it's my audience and i can just write stuff whereas instagram everything's just so heavily judged now it's like everybody wants to be mad about something everybody's trying to, they're literally actively trying to get offended and so i was holding back i'm like no i just gotta do it and so i'll just you just go do the thing and i you know i tell people with email the biggest issue people make is and i was like i'm still tempted to do it is just write a short book called just fucking send it. Um, cause so many people, they've got the email ready. Wow. We tweak this or that or this or that. It takes me five to 10 minutes to write most of my emails and I email daily and I don't edit. I go and I hit send and it works. And people will spend the first guys I worked with, we would, I'd send him an email and then he would, him and his like girlfriend would edit for an hour and they changed six words. And I'm like, bro, it doesn't make a difference. You could have hit send an hour ago. So many people are just afraid, just hit send, just send it. Like that's the, the trick for so much to put it out there. Cause especially this is the beauty of, of marketing and sales and entrepreneurship is people vote with their wallets. Mm-hmm. So you say, Oh, this copy is great. And I go, well, that copy bombed. Well, but I liked it. Well, it doesn't matter. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. Well, I hate that sales page. Well, it's crushing it. So you don't, vote with your subjective opinion you let people vote with their wallets and the only way you know good enough is good enough done is better than perfect and so i just put it out and it's because you go well it's not perfect it's not ready well it's never going to be ready put it out when you think it's 80 percent ready let the market vote for a week and then come back and change it rather than trying to get it all right in advance you just go this is this version is ready yeah and that's i think that's been my biggest advantage in business is i didn't have the mental and emotional blocks around getting shit out there. And I just, the second I basically have an idea, it'll be like, it's out. Yeah. And I just go and see what people think. And I let people, you know, vote with either their wallets or the, if it's, you know, a viral type video thing, they vote with they whether or not they share it and laugh and, and do stuff. And then, you know, you, that's how you learn is through the data. Yeah. So um, you work with a lot of, um, you know, either clients that you work with on the entrepreneurial side or you running your own business. If you had a group of entrepreneurs that 
uh, of various business sizes uh, in kind of today's modern quote gig economy, if you will. Um, any couple of nuggets to send them home with? What 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 are one or two things they should be thinking about that could help them shift and kind of be more impactful and effective? You're saying for somebody who either has a business or like a freelancer type uh-huh. person. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I would say, honestly, probably the most useful thing that I focus on these days with people is just the concept of exponential income. So, so much of, and I basically define exponential income as any income you generate that isn't dependent upon your time or dependent upon you being present. And so the way that you start things is typically how you finish them. So entrepreneurs go, well, I'm just going to grind, you know, 12 hours a day for the next two years and then I'll just chill. And no, you won't because you're building yourself into this business. You're building yourself into an unscalable web. You don't, you know, because what happens is that whole team you built around you now, two years later, you go, hey, guys, I'm just going to chill for three hours and work three hours a day. And they go, wait, but you're involved in everything. Mm-hmm. And you get addicted to it. And so um, that was the biggest thing is when I was, you know, coaching tennis and I was, I had this one sales job. I was like, I have to be present to make money. And so, so many people build themselves into a business or a freelancing gig that is unscalable and that doesn't allow you any opportunity for exponential income. So any income that can grow without you having to put in more work. So if you're a freelancer, it's looking at the deal structures of how do I get either a retainer or a flat fee or whatever it is, and then have a bonus incentive on everything that I do as a business owner. It's how do I, what is my, for me, I have what I call a big money sentence. So when I'm writing, speaking or making videos, I'm making money because even if I'm not directly, you know, let's say right now, I'm not directly making money, but people will either go buy the book or they'll buy some of my stuff. And over time they'll buy more stuff. And either way I have funny that, you know, I don't care if that happens or not, but you learn that there are certain things that are always going to generate revenue for you. And like, that was why, that's why email is one of my favorite things because I can write an email. It can make me money today. And then I can put it in an autoresponder and it can make me money for the rest of my life. How do you get, how do you do something only once and get paid on it over and over again? I think very few people look at that. They build a membership program and it requires more of their time for every person. I say, so if you had a hundred members today and I could send you a hundred new members tomorrow, could you do that? Well, no, it'd take me too much time. I couldn't handle it. Well, you're building an unscalable thing. Yeah. So looking at, I don't, you know, I don't know how tactical that is for yeah. people, but that's yeah. really the biggest thing that I can say is, looking at is this time dependent am i doing something that requires me to be physically present or to be there in person and that's why copy originally was so enticing to me too is you know john carlton says it's like a it's a salesman in print right so you get the used car salesman who's standing there if he's not in on the sales floor talking to someone he is not making money if i wasn't on the court teaching tennis i wasn't making money i can write something once and that sales that it can run for five years mm-hmm. and I'm doing whatever else I want to do. Yeah. So that's that kind of, you know, it's like true. Well, I, I don't know if you know, Naval Ravi Khan. Of course. Um, uh, love his shit. If you, yeah. anybody here, go listen to Akira the Dawn on Spotify. Akira the Dawn makes these, uh, it's called Meaning Wave. He makes this music of like, it'll be Joe Rogan clips, uh, Jordan Peterson, Jocko Willink, uh, Alan Watts, who's my favorite philosopher for sure um and he takes their spoken word and he creates music around it naval ravi khan has an album on there and i'm actually writing a book about luck because of one of his songs wow. 
And Naval's stuff is incredible. Anyone thinks that true wealth is owning assets that earn while you sleep. And so if you're building stuff that always requires you, that's not wealth. That's just a job that it's typically a gilded, you know, a, a nice golden handcuff prison of your own creation. And you end up one day waking up and you're in prison. You're like, oh, my God, I'm the guy who built this prison. That's sad. <laughs> and maybe it's got gold on the you know, gold bars and it looks nice, but it's still prison. Yeah. Hey, um, uh, where can where can people get more of the hitman? Um, you can go to persuasion hitman.com that's where the book is uh if you want the daily emails which is where i write my yeah. sort of best stuff my most fun stuff um that's standupconversions.com so s-t-a-n-d-u-p conversions.com or feedthewolf.com which is easy to remember i i just tattooed it here <laughs> tattooed in case it. i forgot awesome. um feedthewolf.com has uh, you can put your email in there and that has all my courses and stuff as well Awesome. Hey, um, Ian, can't thank you enough for spending time dropping some awesome knowledge. And uh, it was really enjoyed kind of catching up before the show with you as well, man. There's a- yeah, we'll have to we'll have to hang out. I know you're not too far away. So thank you for having me. It's super fun. You yeah, like different questions than anybody's asked me. I enjoy it. That's awesome, man. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, man. Hey, Sharon, I have a cool gift for you. I took some of my best ideas from the last 20 years and created a five-day MBA. It's quick and action-packed that you can listen to on the go, just like this podcast. And I want to give it to you for free, just as a thank you for listening to the show. No fluff, no gimmicks, just pure actionable ideas for you to use instantly. You can grab it right now at businessschoolshow.com. That's businessschoolshow.com dot com.